Well, I want to thank you uh, for letting me be here, calling me to be here. I got to leave very early tomorrow morning, get back to Westmont for a baccalaureate and uh, commencement and a lot of other things. Uh, but what a joy it is to be here. And Russ, Ross, thank you so much uh, for your years of preparation and for doing your homework. Uh, a lot of times when you come to a conference to speak, you know, you, you just speak. And I've just been privileged to sit for a few hours uh, and listen to you uh, ex exposit First Peter. And I, uh, I want to just go preach it now someplace. And, uh, <laughs> but thank you so much. I, I know you've, uh, you don't just pull this stuff out of your hip pocket. And uh, working in, a, in an academic institution, I, I have a lot of friends, and I know the kind of uh, rigor that goes into this. And it is really quite brilliant and, uh, and a tremendous encouragement. So, Ross, thank you so much. And uh, I am so glad I got to hear you. Um, and thanks to the rest of you for just being fun and mouthy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was going to quote another portion from the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. I'm a little afraid <laughs> that some smart aleck over there wants to show off. <laughs> yeah, I don't do, I don't talk this way with most people. I don't say shut up. You know, I uh, really don't. I, we would, our, our grandkids might get spanked for saying shut up. But I've said it, shut up. Now you can say shut up a lot of different ways. You know, shut up. Shut up. I like the second. Shut up. That's good. Anyway, forgive me. I'm, I'm wandering. Um, the Psalms uh, are a stretch. And uh, I, 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 I love it. An, an anecdote from uh, Abraham Heschel, this great uh, philosopher of religion and, uh, and a, a great man of faith. I, I just know. <laughs> I don't know anything about who's going to be on the other side, but I just expect to see Abraham, but I don't know. But he, he says so many wise things, so, such biblical thoughts. But uh, people in his synagogue were complaining that the liturgy did not express what they felt. You can relate, you know. And uh, his answer, uh, which I read years ago, has really set me free and, and given me some, some chutzpah and some courage as a pastor. He said, well, no, it's not... It's not that the liturgy should express what you feel. It's that you should learn to feel what the liturgy expresses. And we're in training uh, as, as believers. And our affections and our emotions and our attitudes need to be trained. And, you know, and it's a stretch. You know, let's face it. I, I, I'm so grateful that one of my best friends at Westmont is Trimper Longman and a, a real world-class Old Testament scholar. And uh, we, uh, we like to watch B-movies together. Uh, we just, just saw Captain America. And, uh, <laughs> and just talk theology. And uh, parenthetically here, there are about 10 faculty, we go see these movies, you know, the Avengers and all these silly movies. And uh, uh, the best one was Hellboy, because it had such <laughs> theological significance. And, uh, and but there, <laughs> particularly tonight, this was two weeks ago, we were watching... Uh, watching Captain America Part Two, and uh, there are about 12 students from Westmont, and they saw all these faculty sitting there uh, with the chaplain and uh, watching this silly movie, and uh, it was really cute, because they, they waited around in the, uh, in the lobby when we walked out, and they just walked up and said, do you, do you guys do this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. But anyway, uh, i got to get on track here. I'm just, I just had dinner, and I want to take a nap. But... Uh, but Trevor said something that really helped me because, you know, the psalm, pray the psalms, uh, it, it's a stretch emotionally. There's a lot of anger, a lot of conflict. And, uh, and we'll look at a, just briefly at a psalm that, was, that Peter quotes uh, on Pentecost Sunday. And th th these aren't pretty, some of these. And, uh, you know, we, in Christ we realize that these psalms, especially these psalms of... Uh, well, lament, but particularly the psalms of, of anger and conflict, that uh, as they are fulfilled in Christ, we realize that our enemies are no longer uh, this king or that king or this political situation or that person, but it's the powers of darkness. And, we, and, and, and <laughs> Trevor said to me one day, he says, you know, if the New Testament didn't kind of fulfill all this and, and uh, spiritualize it, he said, we'd all be jihadists. And he's right. Uh, this, is, this is demanding stuff emotionally. And I I had a group of students uh, a couple of years ago. I was teaching them some of the Psalms, and we were praying Psalm 3, which David prays, you know, as his son Absalom is rebelling. And, uh, 
And he, uh, he, he, at one point, he says, God, you know, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. And, uh, and I was sort of encouraging the students, again, to read it through the lens of the New Testament and realize that we don't, we don't pray this uh, against people anymore. But we do pray uh, prayers that are hostile, I believe, I'm convinced of this, toward uh, the powers and the rulers and, uh, of this dark world. And so I was encouraging the guys to say, look, just pray it like you meant it. So let's just take Psalm 3. And uh, one kid, I just did his wedding last year, he's the sweetest, gentlest person, and he volunteered to pray Psalm 3 as though he meant it. And, uh, you know, this bit about striking enemies on the jaw and breaking the teeth of the wicked. And, uh, <laughs> so good. He, he, we're all about eight of us in my, my study, in my office, and he bowed his head and he started praying good evangelical prayers. Just, Dear Jesus, would you just strike our enemies on the jaw? And would you just <laughs> break the teeth? And he got about halfway through that sentence, and everybody cracked up in the room, and he, <laughs> including him. But, you know, realize that there's, you know, if you, you, these psalms ask things of us that I think are really good and uh, could sure wake us up. Uh, the psalms matter to Jesus. Jesus quotes two of them on the cross. Jesus matters to the psalms because Peter quotes two psalms on the day of Pentecost when he's trying to make sense. Uh, and explain to the crowd what this whole resurrection thing and this, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I love, as he quotes these two psalms, part of Psalm 16, which I'm going to spend some time on tonight, and Psalm 110, which I'll spend a little, little less time on. Uh, but he, he sort of prefaces his quotations from these psalms by saying that it was, and paraphrasing, but it was impossible for death to hold him. Now, that's a, that's a vigorous statement. Death could not hold him. And then he tells us why. And he quotes Psalm 16. And then he quotes Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, do you know, this is uh, not just Bible trivia. And, and I, I won't do it with you all, but I, I've, I've gone, I've, I've, whenever I've talked about the Psalms, I, I'll always ask, you know, how many can tell me what is the most often quoted and alluded to Psalm in the New Testament? And only in the last seven years, uh, only one person ever knew what it was. And the, the, you know, the, they're good guesses. You know, again, kind of David's greatest hits. But uh, no one guessed it was Psalm 110. Every statement in the New Testament that speaks of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is an allusion to Psalm 110, which reads, and David, again, Peter quotes it partially, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hang on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, that psalm has the line in it. Most often, quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. He is seated now at God's right hand. And every good Jew knew the whole psalm. Now, there were some surprises, I think, for Peter even. The fact that we had a, had a wonderful woman. Some of you know Frederica Matthews Green. And she's an Orthodox Christian, and she spoke in our chapel, and she spoke on the Magnificat. And uh, the Magnificat's very warlike. And she, you know, she, she was just musing about it. But she's saying, you know, I, I don't think Mary really knew what this is going to mean when she quotes the when she says that, which is a quotation from a number of Old Testament scriptures. But she didn't, she didn't yet get it. She, she couldn't have, that, that Jesus would take this in a whole new way. Uh, and I think, again, Peter, when he quotes this psalm in the early Christians, uh, they're, they're starting to get the picture. Again, this is just my surmising, and I, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure Ross has some very good opinions about this. But, you know, there's a psalm that's extremely violent about heaving up bodies, about, about the utter destruction of God's enemies. 
and it is used to explain what happened in the resurrection. Now, let me just talk about this a little bit because I just think it's fun to, to think about this. Uh, in, 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 orth- in Orthodox theology, Christian Orth- Eastern Orthodox theology, uh, and again, in s- certain sectors of Roman Catholicism, uh, you know, they, they have speculated, okay, what, what was the earthquake about in Matthew when Jesus died? Well, they call it the harrowing of hell, that the earthquake was the visible manifestation of Christ descending to the dead and kicking butt. That we, we're experiencing what he did down there. And there's a, there's a, a marvelous array of, of iconography which showed Jesus going down to hell and, 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 and pulling Adam out of his casket, you know. And, uh, and, and all the hell just shaking in his boots, you know. Well, this, this is the mentality here of this psalm. Uh, one of the early great preachers in the church, uh, you've heard of uh, John Chrysostom. He loved to preach on this, and he loved Psalm 110. And, uh, and he believed that, you know, that, okay, the death of Christ was a kind of tragedy, but he also thought it was a bit of comedy. Death was embittered, he writes, because it was mocked. Death said, I got you. This is my paraphrase of Chrysostom. I got you. Jesus said, I got you. It took a body but met God face to face. Death swallowed something it could not digest. Okay. But see, Psalm 110 There's a window here into a whole area of theology of the resurrection. We think of Jesus' resurrection as his exaltation, rightly. But have we also thought about it as the humiliation of God's enemies? Uh, the equivalent of a, uh, the boot of a warrior on the neck of the vanquished. Exodus 15.3, Yahweh is a warrior. Now, if you know anything about Trimper Longman, you know why I like this so much, because he wrote a wonderful monograph about the wars of Yahweh. And I think it's uh, well worth looking at. So anyway, there's that one quote. Okay, what does it mean? Uh, Psalm 110, and of course, Jesus makes a point of saying to the Pharisees, he's saying, you know, you know that Psalm. How could David say of the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet. Well, okay, it's a lot to do with that. In fact, I, I was debating when I got here, should I even try to preach on that psalm? And I could, uh, but I'm going to chicken out. <laughs> and preach on the other psalm, which, uh, which I love so much, is Psalm 16 which is quoted again. Again, again, the the topic sentence in a way is, death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Because of God's power to enthrone his son. But in Psalm 16, it's also because of God's faithfulness to his promises, God's great love. And and what I want to do tonight is uh, preach what I've been praying as uh, over the last 15 years, I've just prayed this psalm over and over again. So uh, if ever there was a sermon that was just basically uh, notes in my journal as I pray, it would be this particular sermon. It starts off with a, a, a plea for, for help. He wants, he's looking for security. And so David prays, and, and again, Peter insists that David is prophesying as he prayed this psalm. Uh, Keep me safe, O Lord. For, and you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I can do, there's no good thing. As for the saints in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. That's the other reason why death could not hold him. Well, it starts off with a prayer for security. And it ends up with a great declaration of love and joy. And I want to meditate on this song with you this evening as a, a prayer of joy in the security of God. Now, I, I want to back up before I start opening up the psalm and, and tell you how I first began to think about joy. Um, I was probably seven or eight years old, and, I, and I'm just judging about where, where the, my grandma's dinner table was in relation to my chest. And uh, Sunday dinner at my grandma's house was, was quite an event. They had a, I, looked back, I looked at that little pictures of that little house they had in Oklahoma, and it was just tiny, but she would just, we'd just get packed in there. And this woman, oh gosh, she could cook. And, uh, and you know, to this day, uh, grandma's mashed potatoes and gravy is the signature dish uh, of my life. I, I, I go into a restaurant, I choose an entree, whether, whether or not it has mashed potatoes and gravy. And so at grandma's house, it was just great. And I, and I had positioned myself at the table. Uh, again, just the table's about here. And I had positioned myself right in front of this big bowl of mashed potatoes. Again, we're, getting on, we're, we're coming to joy. We'll get back to Psalm here in a minute because it'll kind of frame what I want to say. And I was looking at this mountain, this mountain of mashed potatoes, and I really had to kind of look up. And, and uh, there were rivulets of butter melting and running down the sides of the mountain. You guys, butter is good. <laughs> and and there, there was steam rising. And I, I was looking at that mountain, and over here there was a big bowl of gravy, and I was just thinking, will I make a lake of gravy? Will I make a, a moat of gravy? And I was, I, but I was right there to get the mashed potatoes and gravy. And, uh, and my grandpa uh, asked an uncle, I'll call him Albert from the Beatles song, uh, asked Uncle Albert to pray over the meal, which kind of shocked me because uh, I, I didn't know much about Uncle Albert, but I, you, you, kid, you know, kids sort of form opinions about other people by the way the adults will lower their voices when they're talking about them. And so whenever Albert came up, you know, the voices got a little lower. And uh, so I didn't know what was wrong with him, but there was one strange word they used when they talked about Albert, and it was the word Pentecostal. <laughs> I had no idea what a Pentecostal was. I was about to find out. And, uh, and so I, I knew they didn't quite approve of the Pentecostal. So he started praying. And he, he was really, really thankful. I mean, he was so thankful. Uh, he thanked God for the food, for the hands that prepared it. He thanked God. He, asked, he started thanking God for every single dish on the table. And he, 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 started, you know, he started kind of singing his prayer. And he started clapping his hands. And he started weeping. And he went on and on and on. And all I could see was the steam on the mashed potatoes getting lower and lower and the, and the butter hardening. And I, I was just, I couldn't believe, why would any man pray that long? And, and when he got done, you know, the potatoes were past their prime. And, and I resented that man for a long time. But it, it planted a seed in my mind. And here's the seed it planted. When you're really grateful, you can't help but be joyful. In fact, uh, as I grew up and remembered that incident, it, it just occurred to me, if, if my, my gratitude could be commensurate with the grace that's been given me, why, I might act just like Uncle Albert. In fact, that joy is probably what it feels like to be grateful. And I've been reflecting on that ever since. And so as we go into this psalm, I, I want to just add one bit more of my, my reflection on this, uh, starting with Uncle Albert. Uh, did you know that the uh, Greek words for grace and gratitude uh, all have the same root? 
Chi Alpha Rho. Grace is charis. Uh, gratitude is eucharistia. And joy is kara. Now, this doesn't prove my point, but I think it's a brilliant illustration, and maybe God arranged the Greek language to develop in such a way that I could make this point tonight. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but there you have a picture of what I want to say, that kara is what you experience when you have eucharistia. And they both come from the grace of God. Where grace, oh, well, where sin abounds, so does grace. And where grace abounds, so does gratitude and joy. This is good stuff. It's Heidelberg Catechism, my friends, and it's the Bible. So we go back to this psalm of joy and a, a psalm of pleading for security. And again, which results in this, this cataclysmic event when, 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 again, the apostle will say, death could not hold him. Why? Because he prayed that prayer. And it was his father's pleasure to answer that prayer. So in the end, he could say, oh, you will not let your holy one see decay. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Eternal pleasures. So, let's walk through the psalm briefly. And this is how I've learned to pray this. He declares the joy of knowing the security of God himself. And he identifies the source. He said, I, I, I said to the Lord, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now this can be taken or, or two ways, I suppose. One, all good comes from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of the heavenly lights. And secondly, God is the only good. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's Paul saying, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He wasn't saying that all things were bad, but that all things, even good things, are bad compared to the sheer goodness of God. All other gods are but signs of him who is goodness itself. And then he expands on what he means when he says God is his only good. He says, Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, you know the language. Uh, portion. You are my portion. That's what was said of the Levites. In the Old Testament, the portion of the Levites was not land. It was God and nothing else. The Levites would be a sign of the true identity of Israel as the people of God. And I would imagine sometimes a child might see a Levite and find out, you know, ask its mom and dad, what, what was the, where were these guys who had no land, no property, and, and uh, would say to his friends, hey, you poor Levites, all they have is God. Which is precisely the point. I don't know who said this, but uh, the one who has everything but doesn't have God has nothing. The one who has nothing but has God has everything. And so he rejoices. He rejoices in the fact that in his, his prayer for security, he knows this much. He knows that he has God. Wow. You know, and here I, I can only add another prayer to this prayer. May God give me the grace to see what I have in Christ. Paul prayed prayers like this. He prayed to the Ephesians, or for the Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Boy, this has meant so much to me. 
and I'm sure to so many of you. Um, now, I don't get many experiences like this, but I'm going to tell you an experience I had when I was pastoring my last church in New Jersey. Um, only once in my life have I told God, I know you want me to do this, but I really would like plan B. Um, that was the hardest four years of my life, pastoring that last church I pastored. And the, the details aren't important, but, uh, but it's just, I, I, was, um, I was about 50, and all I knew is I wanted out. And I just, and, and, and I, I mean, I have a wife and I have children. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to sell anything. I just knew I had to get out. And I went on a long walk one day, and I just said, God, I know you want me to be here, but would you please give me plan B? That's how desperate I got. Now, again, I don't get many experiences like this, but maybe two weeks later, uh, our choir was performing a, a, wonderfully, a wonderful musical uh, uh, setting of the, the Apostles' Creed. And, uh, you know, Augustine talks about this, and, and I know some of you, but anyway, no more apologies. I saw his face. Not with my irises, but I, I saw his face. Just for a moment, I saw him. You know, I'd give anything to see it again. And I will. But all I know is I could say after that, I could say, Lord Jesus, if you want me here the rest of my life, I'm happy to be here if you just give me a look once in a while. You are my portion and my cup. You know, wow. And, and I think I got, a, maybe I got a, a, uh, an inkling of this when I was a kid. Uh, our pastor, Earl Rosenberger, the little Baptist church I grew up in, he was moving, he was going to go to another church. Earl was not a good preacher, at least to my junior high mind. And, uh, and he was giving his farewell sermon. And I was sitting in the third row with my buddy Gary Bosler, and we were passing notes and screwing around. And, uh, and I just, but then I noticed, I'd never seen a man do this before. Uh, he, he started weeping in public. And boy, it got quiet. And I listened to what he said. And he just read Acts 4.13, where the apostles were hauled up before the Sanhedrin. And, uh, and they, they couldn't believe what these guys said. And, and, and Luke reports, he said, and they perceived that these men had been with Jesus. And Earl, dear Earl, as he choked back his sobs, he said, I hope that there, whenever you've seen me or met with me, you've, you've, that once in a while you've known that I've been with Jesus. And I couldn't relate to it at 12. But you guys, <laughs> this is what David's talking about what Jesus is talking about. Lord, you, you, you are my portion and my cup. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And again, I'm preaching my prayers right now. And this is what what's kind of keeps me going. You know, and, it's, and it's occurred to me that um, for all these years I've wanted to do something for God. And it's just dawned on me, like in the last couple of years, he wants me to do something with him. Come to me, all you who are overburdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He wants to be yoked with you and me. Well, death could not hold Jesus. It was impossible to. Because God was his portion his cup, his land. And there's also in this psalm the, the, the joy of knowing the security of God's people. As for the saints in the land, they are the glorious one in, in whom is all my delight. Wow. They're excellent. 
And what's the security he gets there? And what's the joy he gets there? Well, on a deep level, it's the new reality brought about by becoming a member of the body of Christ. A member of a club can exist outside the club. A member of a body cannot. A toe ceases to be a toe once it leaves the body. Jesus' mission, what was it? Well, I used to like to say back in my early days, well, Jesus didn't come to preach a religion. He came to preach a relationship. Eh, it's close. But if I'm to read Matthew 16 right, after Peter confesses his faith in Jesus, Jesus says, and I will build my church. Jesus came to build a church, to create a people. And the Lord's Prayer, not the Our Father, I mean, the real Lord's Prayer is John 17. And watch Jesus pray before he goes to the cross. He says to his Father, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. You know, I became a Christian uh, through child evangelism. My mom and dad didn't take me to church. Uh, they were theists, and they kind of had vague Christian ideas, but it was a little lady down the street, Mrs. Dalton, in Compton, California. If you know about Compton, South Central L.A. And Mrs. Dalton invited all the little urchins in the neighborhood to come to the Good News Club. And back in those days, you could advertise. And so she passed out flyers at Abraham Lincoln Elementary School and invited us to the Good News Club and advertised free popsicles. And so I was there. And I was just irritated when I realized it was a ruse to get me to listen to Bible stories. But I went. And she was something. You know, she, uh, she, would, she went get through all the, all the great stories in the Old Testament, New Testament. You know, Samson and, well, not Samson and Delilah. Uh, in fact, I don't think she ever talked about Samson. But, you know, David and Goliath, you know, Noah, the flood, and whatever. But no matter what the Bible story was, she always pulled out this ancient form of technology called a flannel board. You, you, you've heard of them? And there was a big red heart on it with a door. And uh, Jesus, it, it was a, a replica of Solomon's Jesus. You know, Jesus, the uh, Scandinavian, that, that one. And, uh, and he's knocking on the door. And Mrs. Dalton would always point out that there's no doorknob on the outside. It's only on the inside. And then she would quote Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and let me in and come in, and I'll sup with him and he with me. And she said, if you let Jesus in, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Now, I don't know, it's 10. That's, that's a good deal. Yeah. And I don't know where I got this. I mean, I, 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 on some level, I didn't get it from church. So we didn't go. But I, I, I had some sense that if I died, I might be in big trouble, that there's some reckoning here. And I thought about it for a while, but, but she invited us to invite Jesus into our hearts. And on the same day, my sister and I, raised our little hands, and we went back, and we prayed with her, and I went home, and I told my mom what we had done, that we'd invited Jesus into our hearts. And you know what she did? She got us out of bed on Sunday morning and took us to church. That was not in the deal. (laughs) It was me and Jesus, okay? I liked that part. I didn't like the church part. And, and, And I know she felt guilty because she hadn't been telling us the gospel, hadn't been taking us to church. And so thus began this pilgrimage, if you want to call it that, where I like Jesus. I do. It's just the rest of you folks. And the funny thing about Jesus is when he comes in, he brings all his friends with him. He has some weird friends. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard who said, you know, when God sees a crowd or Jesus sees a crowd, he does two things. First thing, he disperses it and gets one-on-one. Second thing he does is introduce us to each other, having done that. So I'm surrounded by students who uh, are apt to say, well, I like Jesus. I just don't like the church too much. They're the ones we call the nuns. When they are to indicate their religious preference, they say, well, a nun. Well, how can you love Jesus if you don't love who he loves And again, death could not hold Jesus. Couldn't. Because he hoped in God. And he delighted in God's people. Wow. My first conscious experience of God's love for me 
was my sophomore year in college. I can still remember the clothes I was wearing. Of course, that's pretty easy at that time. I always just wore T-shirts and jeans and, and flip-flops. But um, I was walking across campus, and for the first time in my life, I mean, I've been a Christian for some years now, and I, I, I knew God loved me, but it was kind of, you know, I love him, you know. And it was, it was, I didn't think he liked me very much. And uh, I was walking across campus, and it, I, I don't, suddenly I knew that he delighted in me. Still makes me weep. And I started, I thought, why, why now? What, what happened? And, and I, I knew. It was all these guys I was living with who were Christians also. And we'd sit around and talk till the wee hours of the morning. And every so often, something would come out of my mouth or theirs that I had never said to anybody. <laughs> and I was sure once it came out of my mouth, they were going to just quietly get up and leave the room one at a time, you know. And instead they said, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, that's cool, cool. And I began to make the connection at about age 21 between Jesus and the security of his love and those guys. And therefore, God's people. One of the most appealing pictures of the joyful security of God's people is Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, down upon Aaron's beard, or on the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord pronounces blessing. Well, well death couldn't hold Jesus because God was his joy, because God's people were his joy. And because he knew the joy of God's counsel. Can you imagine Jesus praying this part, which he no doubt did? I mean, Jesus praying this. I, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I like to picture Jesus praying that prayer. And that bit about because he's at my right hand. Because he is on my right hand, I will not be shaken. You know what that means? That means that whatever is going to get to Jesus has to come through his Father. Whatever is going to get to you has to come through his Father. It can't get there unless he lets it get there. All that comes to you and me comes by God's hand and through God's heart. Okay, I'm going to take, take the plunge and I'm going to quote the Heidelberg Catechism. So, <laughs> Question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer. Providence is the mighty and ever-present power of God by which he pulls as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. Hmm. Next question. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. All events, everything, all experiences are signposts to God. I have a dear friend who lost her husband and her son within two years of each other. Great woman of faith. You know what she said about God? God is vast. But I still bellow when I talk to him. Hmm. The counsel of God. You know, students want to know. I mean, the students have changed. 
a lot. But there's two areas that I don't see any difference between students that I work with now and the students I, the student I was when, back in the early 60s. They want to know, what am I going to do when I grow up? <laughs> Who am I going to marry? What's going to be my career? And how do I know this? And will I miss it if God is trying to, sh- you know, I hate this, God is trying to show me something. I just can't get it. I don't know what it is yet. And my steady counsel is to say, if, job, if God has got a hard job to do, it's just getting you to trust him. As the rest, he will counsel you. He will get you where you need to be. And what's the counsel that, that David gets from God? And therefore, what Jesus gets from his father? He says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. That's the counsel. You show me how to live joyfully. Um, I love G.K. Chesterton. And he has a great line uh, toward the end of his book, Orthodoxy. Uh, That section, I, I don't know if I can ever read the whole thing without weeping. It's just so wonderful. But he said, you know... He says, joy is the small publicity of the pagan and the gigantic secret of the Christian. And he goes on to explain what he means. He says, for the pagan, for the non-believer, the, the, the arena in which he or she can be joyful is just, it's tiny, it's constricted. There's so little they can really ultimately be joyful about. They can't be joyful about eternity. About, about death, they, they just got this little part. So what do they do? They make a lot of noise because there's so little to it. But Christians, on the other hand, it's a gigantic secret. We can suffer, and we will. But when it comes to the big stuff, man, we can be joyful. Let me, let me I, I think I invented this, all right? Let me, let me come in to you. Um, uh, spiritual discipline. I, I love. I do this. I'm having a bad week, bad day, bad year, whatever. Uh, someone will walk, walk up to me and say, how are you doing, Ben? And I'll say, well, other than the fact that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to spend an eternity of joy in the presence of God, I'm not doing too well. <laughs> and uh, I love the look on her face. You know, it's just my Wittenberg door personality. But... But the short version is, uh, how you doing? I say, well, I'm fundamentally sound. And I really encourage a lot of students at Westmont are starting to say this to each other. But the point is, you know, everything that matters has been taken care of. Yeah. Paul said in Romans 8, he who did not withhold his own son from us, how can he not give us everything else that we need? I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. It's fundamentally okay. The rest is details. The cancer is a detail. The lousy job's a detail. The big stuff is covered. Death could not hold Jesus of his father, his father's promise, his father's people, his father's counsel. It could not hold him. And then the last piece of this is joy in knowing God's faithfulness even in death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. There are eternal pleasures at your right hand, even joys forevermore. Okay, this is kind of a sermon, I guess. But you've been listening to me pray. And these are things I've just been praying for quite a while. I want to close with a a quotation from G.K. Chesterton. Um, You know, this is also at the end of his book, Orthodoxy. Uh, Chesterton says, you know, the problem with us, with all of us, is that we're born upside down. And uh, our, our heads are stuck in the earth and our feet are dangling up in heaven. 
And, uh, and because of that, the only thing that seems real to us is the earth, you know, and, uh, and heaven, all that stands for, it's, it just seems insubstantial. And to be converted is to be set right side up. Your feet are on the ground where they belong, and your head's in heaven where it belongs. So now that your feet are on the ground, you can walk, and because your head's in heaven, you can see. You've heard the saying, you know, he's, no, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Well, I say, the only way to be any earthly good is to be heavenly minded, to see things from God's perspective. So, with that in mind, he closes his book uh, on orthodoxy uh, with a meditation, which I'm going to read to you, on what he thinks is perhaps the shyness of Jesus. There's just, he said there's just something about Jesus that he, seemed, he just seems to be restraining and concealing. It's just like he, and, and it's as though almost like Jesus doesn't think we can handle it about him. Now, it's a risk to read this because the words are so good and they're meant to be read, not just read aloud, but I'm going to try. There was a shyness to Jesus, something he hid. His pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud, proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far side of his native city. Yet, he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down from the steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet, he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied, don't miss this, it was his mirth, his joy. Too frantic, too uproarious, too vigorous for us to handle, at least now. Lord, you made known to us the path of life. You fill us with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And because death could not hold your son, we know that in him it will not hold us. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So do we dismiss or do we have Q&A or what, what's the idea? I'm okay, yeah. yeah. Check. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Hey, you know, I just got to share this, and then I got a question, but I heard you speak at Pimpa, Pippum Conference about 25 years ago, and everybody was really pissed off there. It seemed like uh, there were associate pastors who were mad at their heads of staff and so on, <laughs> and there was an intensity about you, and I remember you turned me on to George Herbert. I remember asking a question, how you, how you fed yourself, and you made some joke about forks and spoons, and then talked about how you did your day. I'll never forget it. But I just got to say, there's like a joy about you that it was not there back then, at least I didn't pick it up, and it's just, it's just, uh, it's engaging, you know, it's really, it just strikes me, I, I noticed it the, the first time you started talking, uh, whenever, the, Monday night, so I just wanted to say that, it's just really wow. something, it's, it gives me hope, you know, and <laughs> hope I finish, you know, finish like, like, uh, 
or, or get where you are. Okay, the question on a totally different end. You talk can, about I, you, can I respond to that? Just, uh, oh, okay, sure. Just but keep your question in mind. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, I was at Gordon Conwell a couple years ago, and, uh, and I was speaking, and uh, there was an assistant chaplain there who, uh, she and her husband used to go to my church in Irvine. And, uh, and you know, I kind of vaguely remembered her, but she asked if she could, we could talk during the week I was there. So we got together, and, uh, and she looked at me, and she said, what happened to you? I said, what do you mean, what happened to me? He said, well, we always like going to your church. You, you preach a good sermon. But my husband and I would walk out, and we'd say, gosh, he is so angry. And I haven't felt that from you. What, what happened? You know, and I knew what happened. And, uh, and the thing about anger, you know, um, Anger is, by definition, uh, self-righteous. Uh, if you're angry, you always think you have a darn good reason to be angry. So you don't ask to be relieved of your anger. You just, well, it's righteous. And uh, so I never once asked God to heal my anger. Uh, but I did marry Loretta. And I... I was sitting in the snack shop today just thinking about this message, and I was thinking about her. And she is the most visible daily expression to me of God's grace that I have. And God had been quietly taking away my anger by the woman I live with. But I never once asked him to do it. <laughs> so this whole thing you're saying, I, I just uh, it's very close to me. Because I, I was thinking about it this afternoon. So thank you. So what do you want to ask? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I forgot. No. Um, you know, you, you talked about Eugene Peterson and uh, the, the um, oh, what's his book? Answering God. Yeah, I read that years ago. And, uh, and uh, he has that chapter on enemies. And uh, you may have kind of already addressed this, but... And then he, he talks about how frustrated he is with all the prayer books that get rid of, that edit certain parts of the Psalms out, you know, the, the, uh, the angry Psalms. He calls them psalmectomies, you know. And, uh, and then he, he talks how, much, how important it is to still pray our hate. Then he finishes, though, that Jesus redefines for us. In the end of the chapter, uh, uh, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. And something about, but we should never figure that doesn't mean we don't have them, and so on. And, and the question is, uh, is there a way to pray, pray those psalms? In the chapter, he does this exegesis on Psalm 137, you know, which finishes, you know, we're in the, by the waters of Babylon. Is that Psalm 137? Yeah. And finishes, you know, and all this kind of pretty language. They have all these anthems on that, and then it finishes, you know, will you dash? We can't wait, God, to dash all those people's babies on the rocks. And, uh, you know, it's like the worst one. Anyway, but I, I, I'm always kind of struggle with that and how to pray that stuff. And anyway. Well, uh, I haven't prayed it either. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 137, I can't, I can't quite get there yet. Uh, and that would take a more complex answer than I'm actually able to give right now. But, but I do, I, 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 part of my hermeneutic on this, a big part of it is I, I do think uh, what, what was... That, that our true enemy, it was Paul's lines in Ephesians 6 are just determinative for me on these psalms. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, and then his instruction is to put on the armor of God, you know, the helmet of salvation, you know, the shield of faith, etc., etc., praying in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests. So the way I read the Psalms is, is particularly through the lens of that. That's one thing. And, uh, and so you know, how, do, how do you put on the armor of God? How do you fight spiritually? Well, you do it by praying because God is the armor. You know, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. You, know, you, you O Lord, are a shield around me. So that's one big part of my hermeneutic. The other part is, is that Jesus, and this is more important, on the cross took all that 
on himself. And so all the rage and, and bitterness of Psalm 137 and others, he became, he who knew no sin uh, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when I read those Psalms, I, uh, I also read it as a description and with great gratitude that Jesus took that upon himself. But I do think there's a place for praying our anger. Uh, but I think it takes some maturity. But I think we need to pray those psalms anyway uh, and be puzzled and be uncomfortable. I think for the last maybe decade, I've been from afar watching uh, or listening to the music that's been produced at Westmont's Chapel by your son. And I've always been struck by the depth of his um, use of scripture in the music that he writes and the mu music that he has chosen. And so as I was listening, I, I was thinking about it. How did you pass that on to him? Um, because I have my own daughters, and, you know, I mean, you obviously passed a love of Scripture and to him, because I see it in his writing. So that's my question to you. How did you pass it on? Maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was your wife. But how did he get it? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll never give a seminar on how we raise such great kids. Um, we do have great kids. They're, they're incredible. Uh, and anyone who's seen kids grow up and see how hard it is to raise kids, you, you realize whatever they have become that's good, it's, it's more than the sum of the parts. It's a, it's a miracle. Uh, but I will say we have prayed fervently for our kids. And um, yeah, we, we just, I think you know, we love the scriptures, my wife and I do. And so the kids have just kind of grown up around that. And they've, all of them seem to have caught on that not because we didn't, you know. I mean, I, my, my boys especially, they never once gave me a, a shred of encouragement that they were paying any attention to anything we're doing in prayer or Bible. I mean, just no encouragement. They just screwed around. You know, they, and they teased each other. And if one of them prayed, the others would make fun of him. It was just awful. I mean, no, somehow, you know. Uh, by God's grace, they had really grown up to be godly uh, young men and my daughters. You know. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't have a formula for this. I'm just really grateful. Uh, I will say this about Joel, and he, he's okay with me telling you this. But, you know, Joel uh, uh, has Tourette syndrome, and, uh, and we, we discovered it when he's seven years old. And we didn't, you know, we didn't know what it was, and we just knew he was doing weird things, and making sounds and saying things that he had no control over. And so while we were trying to figure out what it was, uh, my church, uh, some people got together and we walked out on the porch one, one morning and there was an envelope with a list of names and people had committed to pray for Joel uh, from 5 a.m. till 11 o'clock at night in 15-minute increments. Now there were some repeats, but, but that, that went on for years. Now, I do not believe in scientific you know, investigations of prayer. So he got all those prayers. I, I think that's just baloney. But I do know he's been prayed for. <laughs> and for whatever it is, uh, thank, praise be to God, uh, they do love scripture. And, you know. and actually, and Jared here is a pastor of my oldest son and his his wife and my three grandsons. You know. yeah. Okay. Thanks for uh, hanging in with me. Uh, can we stand? Let me say a benediction. Unless there's someone else who wanted to didn't get their hand up in time or we're okay? Okay, good. Uh, I love this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what pleases him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.